Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. As I was preparing my notes for tonight, I got a call from a local director of religious education that said he could not find the epistle to the Colossians. So... I said to myself, it's wonderful to go through Dei Verbum. We have two weeks, and we're going to go through it. We're going to go through a lot of it tonight. But we're going to start because I think that's a problem that is true for most Catholics. If I told you to open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, now hold on. You're not allowed to look at your index tonight, and you're not allowed to look at your tabs, that your little cheat sheet tabs that you have stuck in your thing. And don't get started yet. How long would it take you to get to the, to the epistle to the Colossians? Go, open it. Yeah, but you already started. You don't count. Go. Come on. It's okay. Try to find it. Try to find it. The epistle to the Colossians. Is it in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Oh, that's pretty good, Catholics. We're in the right part of the Bible. You got it? All right. We've got one finding. All right. All right. Now, I'm not going to read anything from it. But a little, just a little bit of a thing. I'm going to have you turn somewhere else in just a few moments. If some of you are still kind of scanning around... That's okay. That's okay. So, I want to begin tonight by not starting with Dei Verbum. We're going to get there. But by starting by opening our Bibles and giving a little introduction. And I want you to know that it's okay that you don't know how to find Colossians very easily. I've been in your position. I've been sitting there when, when a speaker says, someone turn to this chapter and verse, and everybody gets a little bit scared that they're going to get called on. To find out that they couldn't find it. Am I right? <laughs> Be honest with me. Okay, now for the Protestants in the room, I know that's not a problem. All right? So I don't want that to be the case with us. I want to make sure that we get comfortable with the sacred scriptures. And how do I mean get comfortable? Do you think I could open this and say, voila, look at how smart Deacon Sabatino is. He can open to Colossians. No, that's not the case. I have a general sense of where it is. I gotta scan back and forth. I find it. A certain confidence that you know generally where it is and how to get there. I'm gonna talk about this more in a few minutes, but you're not gonna get like that until you actually open your Bible. And that means regular opening of your Bible so that you can become familiar with what's inside these, this cover. And if you feel like you're not so familiar with it, that's okay, that's why you're here. I want you to become familiar with it. And I want to help you become familiar with it. And hopefully over the next two weeks, we'll start that process. This is actually part of a bigger series that we're doing because in a few weeks, I am going to be leading you starting November 4th, November 4th, 11th, and 18th of a study of salvation history. Some of you have done that with me before, yes? A few. We are going to be going from Genesis chapter 1 to the end of the book of Revelation in three weeks. Okay. Now, there's two hours each night from 6 to 8, and we're going to take a little break in between. There's a doubleheader three weeks in a row on Sundays. And let me tell you right now that when you walk out of that series of programs, as long as you do what I've asked you to do, you will be able to tell me the basic story of salvation history, all of the major figures in salvation history, all of the major events that have taken place, and where to find them in your Bible. It will be yours. And we're going to begin that process over the next two weeks. Tonight, we simply need to lay some basic groundwork, some, some rules, if you will. Next week, we'll complete those rules, or I should say those tools or keys for understanding the Scriptures, so that as we open up our, our Bible in this series... You'll have a better handle as you're reading the text how to get out of it what you're supposed to get out of it. How many of you have ever read parts of Scripture and gone, oh my, what in the world is going on here? And closed your Bible. It's true, isn't it? Be honest with me, it's true. That cannot happen. 
It cannot happen because this is the revelation of the Word of God. And the Word of God is a person, namely Jesus Christ. And if you don't have communion with Jesus Christ, you won't have salvation. Because there is one person and one person only that can give us the gift of salvation. And that is Jesus Christ. Okay, that's exactly the words that St. Paul uses, the words of the Bible itself. And that's the teaching of the Catholic Church. And so we're going to be getting into that. I want you to become familiar. So very quickly tonight, and some of you are going to say, this is really boring. I'm way beyond this. Be patient and be charitable to those that need it. Okay, so we're going to open and I want to just point out a few things about the Bible as you're starting to read it again that will assist you and also just kind of help you say, okay, yeah, I know basically where we are. So I want you to open your Bibles. Everybody's got one now. Yes, I want you to open then to the book of Genesis. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to open up to the first book of your Bible, the book of Genesis, right at the very beginning of your Bible. Do not look at your index. If I see you look at your index, I'm going to come after you. And don't use your tabs, your cheat tabs, illegal. Okay? The book of Genesis. And all the, here's what I want to point out to you, and obviously tonight we're not going to cover all the entire Bible. That's for that series, not for this series. I'm going to go very fast. And I'm just going to point, I just want you to thumb through your Bible with me. That's all I want you to do. Okay? So we have Genesis, and then we have Exodus. Turn to Exodus. Right? Exodus is the story of the leaving of Egypt, right? You guys, you all know the story of Exodus, right? Of course, okay. You're going to keep going. Leviticus. We're going to talk about why Leviticus. It's a deadly book, isn't it? We're going to re- talk about that. Numbers. Keep going. You're with me? Numbers. You're with me? Yes? Deuteronomy. The second law that's given. We're going to talk in that series about what that's all about, why the second law is required. Those first five books are called the? The Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. As Professor Janisowski mentioned about the five boxes in which the scrolls were kept at Sunday's event. So the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, tells the story really of the patriarchs, those ancient guys that we hear about, about Abraham and Isaac and Noah and Adam and Eve and so forth. We're going to put that all in order in this series coming up. And then we're going to go to the book of Joshua and the entrance of the people into the Holy Land in the book of Joshua. This most of you probably up to Deuteronomy are pretty much with me. Now, Joshua, what in the world is Joshua all about? How many of you have read Joshua before? A few. Do you see what I'm saying? It's starting to wane. Okay? So, Joshua. Keep turning to Judges. This is the time of the Judges when the people were in the Holy Land. And First and Second Samuel. Was, Samuel was one of the last of the Judges. You're with me? First and second kings. What do you think kings is about? The time of the kings. And following first and second kings, first and second chronicles, which is a repetition of first and second kings from the perspective of the tribe of Judah. So first and second kings. And then Ezra. How many have ever read Ezra before? Mm, Not too good. Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah concludes what we would traditionally call the historical book. So everything we just scanned through after Deuteronomy, okay, including Judges and so forth, Ezra and Nehemiah concludes what we would call the historical books. And following Nehemiah, you have in your Bibles Tobit, right? The reason I want to point that out to you is because these things can become very confusing, And some of your Bibles will put right after Nehemiah. Is there anybody else that has something that doesn't have Tobit after Nehemiah? You have Esther. Okay. The reason I want to point this out to you is because the Bible is put together, a number of books, by this company, all right, St. Joseph's, and it doesn't necessarily always go in exact order from Bible to Bible. God didn't come down and tell us which books to put one after the other. Okay, generally speaking, though, following these historical books, we're going to get into the wisdom literature. So you're going to see, you'll see Tobit and Esther and Job 
and so forth. And Psalms. You see the Psalms? Find Psalms with me real quick. Proverbs. These are what we call the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes. The wisdom of Solomon. You're with me? Keep scanning. Go fast. It's okay. Sirach. And then Isaiah. I want you to find the book of Isaiah. The prophecy of Isaiah. Okay? Which begins now the story of the prophets. Okay? So the rest of the text now from now on will be regarding the prophets. For the most part, for the most part, the prophets are arranged in your Bible from longest to shortest. So we begin with Isaiah, and then we continue with Jeremiah, and so forth. I would say for the most part, because if there's texts which are associated with one prophet, they'll put them together. That's an example. If you see Jeremiah, following Jeremiah, you have Lamentations. You see that? The Lamentations of who? Of Jeremiah. So even though it's not a long text, it's still put there next to Jeremiah. Okay? And we're going to just keep scanning. These are all prophets. You can just scan right through the prophets because I'm going to tell you in that series how they fit in and what their importance is. And we're going to scan all the way to the end of the New Testament. Some of you will have 1st and 2nd Maccabees, hopefully, at the end of your Old Testament. You have what? You have them earlier, exactly, because some of your Bibles will take 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which are historical books, and bring them back to the historical section. Right? With Judges and First and Second Kings and so forth like that. But we'll put it in there, okay? Some of your Bibles will have it now then at the end because it falls historically kind of almost in that intertestamental period, right? At the end of the Old Testament, just before the New. So, finally, you get to the New Testament, you always know it all well, don't you? You have the Gospels, you have Acts in the New Testament. Are you guys with me? Am I going too fast? Following Acts of the Apostles, you have the Epistles, of St. Paul. And the epistles of St. Paul are arranged very carefully. First epistles are letters to communities. Where do you think the epistle to the Colossians is going to fall in? In that set. And depending on its length. So it goes from longest to shortest. And following those epistles to these communities, you finally have epistles to people. And so you have Timothy, which we're going to look at a little bit tonight. You also have Titus and Philemon. And then you have the epistle to the Hebrews and so forth. All right? Now, who can tell me the story of the prophet Jonah, basically? What happened to Jonah? Andrew? He ran from God and got swallowed by a fish. (laughs) We all know it, don't we? Turn your Bibles to the prophet Jonah without looking at your index. Raise your hand when the first person finds it. If you're Protestant, don't raise your hand. If you're former Protestant, don't raise your hand. You have, if you're married to a former Protestant, not you Okay, all right, all right. Keep looking. Okay, fine, that's enough. If you haven't found it now, you lost. All right, here's why I wanted to do that exercise with you. How many in this room know the story of the prophet Jonah for the most part? Raise your hand. We all know it, don't we? However, most of us wouldn't have a clue where to find it in the Bible. And we'd be scared to try to find it. We have to start to get over that fear. And to start to trust ourselves, number one, but also to investigate. And to become familiar with the Bible. It's a book that was written to us. And if we don't know it, then God's intention of writing it to us comes to nothing. It was written for you and for me. And so we have to get ourselves to the point where we know. How many of us, having received a letter from a loved one, those of us that are married in this room, you received a note from when you were engaged to be married or wanted to be engaged to be married, whatever it is, how many of you read it three and four and five times and you knew what it said? Yeah, you did. You did. And God has written this text for us. And it has everything to do about love. It's our job then to receive that gift and to say yes to Him that we would want to receive that gift. 
We're going to work on that over the next two weeks and over the next really month and a half together. I really hope and pray that you make every effort to attend this series because I think it will transform your understanding of Scripture. Our program here over the next two weeks, I hope, will also transform our understanding of Scripture in an introductory way to talk about what we're going to be reading. In Vatican II, did all of you get a handout, by the way? I'm going to read you a couple quotations. De Verbum, paragraph 21, towards the end of the text, says that in the sacred books, the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to his children and talks with them. In the sacred books, in the Bible, huh? the Father who is in heaven comes lovingly to his children and talks with them. We are about to embark on a journey. Every time we open the Bible and we read the words of Scripture, we hear God speaking to us. Pope Leo XIII, in his encyclical Providentissimus Deus, I was worried that I was not going to be able to get that one out of my mouth, says, Let all therefore, especially the novices in the ecclesiastical army, Understand how deeply the sacred books should be esteemed, and with what eagerness and reverence they should approach this great arsenal of heavenly arms. The first principle when we're approaching sacred scripture, I believe, should be a sense of humility. To realize and be willing to admit what we just went through. That, you know, in many ways we've failed number one, but also that the riches contained in the sacred scriptures, being the word of God, they are an eternally inexhaustible treasure house. And if we have a sense that we don't know the Bible enough, good. We never will. As I was preparing this talk tonight, it was like a conviction of my being Because I don't know the Bible well enough. We have to be willing to start with that sense of humility. St. Augustine said, he confessed that there was more that he did not know than that he knew. Okay? And so we approach it in that way. Pope Leo XIII continues, We admonish with paternal love all students and ministers of the church always to approach the sacred writings with reverence and piety. For it is impossible to attain to the profitable understanding thereof unless the arrogance of the earthly science be laid aside and there be excited in the heart the holy desire for that wisdom which is from above. What's he saying? If we're opening our Bibles as a way to test it against our own knowledge, we're approaching it improperly. For it is a gift of one who is above us and who bestows upon us a proper knowledge. And so it is not our place to go and judge the things of God, but rather to take a stance of humility to receive that which the other knows and which we do not know. Three points. The first one we've already dealt with a bit. Three problems, I should say, right off the bat. There is a certain lack of confidence about the sacred scriptures among Catholics. We've been told and beaten over the head by everyone, I say by Catholics and Protestants, that we don't know the Bible. I would tend to disagree. I would say that Catholics, for the most part, know the Bible a whole lot more than your average Bible Protestant does. However, most say Bible Protestants, and what I mean by that is Protestants that believe uh, in the Scriptures and are reading them faithfully. It's not true with every single Protestant, just like it's not true with every single Catholic. But those that are, Catholics have a general knowledge of the Scripture and yet don't know exactly how to put it in order. Where Jonah fits into the story, where Noah fits into the story. We know the stories, but how the whole thing fits together escapes us oftentimes. Why is that the case? Because of the Mass. Because of the Divine Liturgy. 
in the liturgy, we have exposure to the sacred scriptures that most of us don't even realize we're hearing. Or when we do hear it, we walk away without our Bibles in our hand. And so you know the stories, but how they relate to one another in this book here in my hands oftentimes surpasses most of us. A second problem that we have, which I believe is a major problem, is that we don't any longer have a biblical language at our hands. And I don't mean Hebrew or Greek or Arabic or whatever it might be. That's not what I mean. The language of the Bible, the concepts and the way of speaking in the sacred scriptures is not familiar to us anymore. If I ask you, for example, as Catholics, I don't mean to leave our Protestant brothers and sisters out that are here tonight, but um, we have a little catching up to do, so we're going to do that. What happens when we're baptized? What happens when we're baptized? Come on, guys. We receive sanctifying grace. What else? We receive the Holy Spirit. Original sin is washed away. Yes, Baltimore Catechism, friends. Yeah. Do you know that there's nowhere in the Bible that says that baptism washes away original sin? Now, before I get thrown out of here, is Father still here? Okay. Before I get thrown out of here, it does do that. But that's a a true theological conclusion based upon biblical evidence. And the problem is that we know the theological conclusion without knowing the biblical foundation. And so we can certainly repeat what we learned in second and third and fourth grade, hopefully. But why it is the case, why we say those words escapes us. And so when we're put to the test by those that are better equipped with the sacred scriptures than we are, we fall apart. And sadly, many leave the church. What does sacred scripture tell us about baptism? Anyone, come on. What happens, what happens when we are baptized? It, say, it certainly does. St. Paul tells us that when we are baptized, we enter into the death of Jesus Christ. And it is there and in that understanding, and we're not going to go after it tonight, that is the foundation for a true understanding in the church of what baptism is and why we can say truly that it washes away original sin. We have to regain that biblical knowledge in the church. We have to regain that biblical knowledge as Catholics if we hope to read the sacred scriptures with profit. Otherwise, we will be importing a modern language and a modern understanding into the text and misreading and misinterpreting the text that we receive, which happens all too often. A third problem. We read the scriptures. We all believe in the word of God. We accept the Bible as the word of God to us. And we read texts which are difficult to understand. And so what do we do as Catholics? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life in you. Catholics? Oh, we love those words, don't we? Do you realize how absolutely insane those words sound? Have you ever stopped to think how difficult that must be for someone who's not a Catholic? To eat the flesh of Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and to drink his blood and somehow that's supposed to make us live forever? Huh? The Bible's full of texts like that. But as Catholics, I call it the Catholic comatose. That's Bible speak. Yeah, okay, we, we believe it. Leave me alone. Okay? That's the way the Bible just kind of Bible talk. Instead of allowing the scriptures to challenge us, allowing Jesus to challenge us, what would we have done if we had stood there with him? Just above the, the, the Sea of Galilee, right there with the water crashing on the seashore. And Jesus had spoken those words to us. Those are going to go with us to the Holy Land. We're going to be right there where our Lord spoke those words. And we're going to see the water and hear it crashing where the apostles stood, where thousands were around Christ and they left him because they heard the challenge and they could not stand up to what he was saying. The Catholic comatose is not okay. 
it's not going to work for us. Because we want to start to understand the scriptures as adults and to allow Jesus to speak to us and to be challenged by the word of God, to be challenged by the sacred scriptures. We have to begin again to read the Bible as God's great love letter to us, his masterpiece to us. And what happens when we go and we behold a masterpiece, a literary masterpiece, probably the most difficult for modern day people? What happens? Huh? Have you ever tried to pick up uh, the Aeneid? <laughs> you know, or Aristotle? Have you ever tried to read uh, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales? We have that in our curriculum, by the way, this year. This stuff is difficult. And most of us can't or we're not willing to go through that process. It's too difficult. And so we put it away. Parents, if you want your children to be able to appreciate something wonderful, like a filet mignon, or like a piece of broccoli. I love, <laughs> I love broccoli, okay? What do you got to do? You got to expose them to it. And if you don't expose them to it, if you give them McDonald's hamburgers every day of their life and suddenly you walk them into a five-star restaurant and you put a $50 dinner in front of them, what are they going to do? No, thank you. Give me my Cheerios back. Right? And we wonder why it is that we have trouble reading the sacred scriptures. Because we're eating Cheerios all the time. There is nothing that will work. There is no key or trick that will help you be able to open the Word of God and to be able to read it as God speaking to you. I have a quotation from St. Ambrose. Beautiful. Listen to this. Tell me if this is what happens to you when you read the Scriptures. As in paradise, this is St. Ambrose, as in paradise, God walks in the Holy Scriptures seeking man. When a sinner reads these scriptures, he hears God's voice saying, Adam, where art thou? He hears God's voice speaking to him. And if we don't hear God's voice speaking to us, I mean to me and to you, then we got to ask ourselves, are we really preparing ourselves for this wonderful gift which God is about to give us? And if we're not prepared, there is one thing you can do to prepare yourself. One first step that cannot be taken away. Without it, nothing will work. And it's simply exposure. Exposure. You gotta eat the filet mignon day after day. You have to walk into museums filled with beautiful art in order to appreciate beautiful art. You have to constantly listen to beautiful music in order to be lifted up. I was, thank God the person's not here right now, but I was in uh, New York City. I went to a restaurant with a group of people. Some of you were with us. And we went to this restaurant. It was terrible. It was one of the worst restaurants I've ever been to. And there was two people there. They loved it. They were coming out of their skin. It was the most fantastic thing. First, we went to the orchestra, okay, in New York City. And the same two people did not come in. They stood in the lobby and waited for the rest of the group to attend the orchestra. Because the life was not for them something rich. They had not cultivated something rich, and, and probably not their fault. They had not been cultivated in a rich life. And so similarly with us, if we seek to understand the Bible, the first step that must take place is that we open it. And if you don't open it, you can't complain, can you? So I know you're all here, and I don't mean to be beating you over the head because you want to open it. And you'll want to learn about it. And we're going to be doing that. But I want to encourage you that as we go over the next few weeks, and if you come to our next series on salvation history, there's nothing I can tell you up here that's going to do anything for you unless you go home and you turn off your television 
and you open your Bible at night. It's true. You've got to do it. With that said, I want to share with you a little text from then Cardinal Ratzinger entitled, On How to Read the Bible. And I just, as a preliminary note to give you these three points, which I think you can jot down in your notepads if you have them, just as a beginning, okay? Before we turn to Dave Erboom. He says, first of all, that we have to read the Scriptures as God's Word to us. The Scripture cannot be read like just any other historical book, much less like the newspaper you get on your front door. We must read it as truly the Word of God, placing ourselves in conversation with God. Huh? There's got to be a back and forth. There's got to be a speaking and asking the questions of God that you want answers to. That's number one. Number two, you have to read with the Master. When I speak to youth groups, which thank God I don't have to do very often anymore, I tell them, if you want to get good at basketball, who do you go and look to? In my day, I loved basketball. You look to Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson, I'm dating myself, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, okay? You went to the masters, you went to your coach, and you asked him how to do this thing. Similarly, we have to go to the masters. And so as we're talking over the next two weeks, I'm going to give you some resources next week about where to go. How do you find some help? How do you have that crutch, if you will, that master who will hold your hand as you walk through these texts and seek to have God speak to you? And third, we must read it within the church. He says, read within the living community of the church. Now, this is of vital importance. You've got to read it as a Catholic and not as a secularist or not as a non-Catholic. Why do I say that? Because the letter... The Bible was given to us, his love letter to us, was given to us in the context of a community. It, did, it wasn't given to King James. Okay, it didn't drop out of, the, out, of the, out of the sky to King James. It was given to a believing community. And in fact, it was written by members of that community. And the members of that community are the only ones that have the proper context to understand it. If I tell you, the hills out there are turning golden. Or I say, the hills out there are golden. What am I talking about? The fall and change of color. No, I'm not because I'm from California and we don't have fall in California. But in the summertime, the fields turn golden brown. I can see that with my eyes because I grew up with it. And it's within that community and that vision where the Word of God is given and revealed. It's a letter to a particular community of people. And only within that community can it be properly understood. Otherwise, we're going to import false concepts into it. He says, read within the company of the church in whose liturgy these events continuously become present again. I'll speak about that later. Such that we gradually enter more and more into the sacred scripture in which God really speaks to us today. And I cannot tell you how important that is because it's everything that Dave Verboom talks about. When we read the Word of God, we enter into the Word of God. And that Word of God is a living person. And we are transformed beyond the written page, or I should say through the written page, to a person. That's why the reading of sacred scripture is absolutely essential for our salvation. You have your handout. And so I want to turn to just the beginning, to paragraph one. And I know I'm really way beyond time because I really haven't even started my talk. <laughs> and I want to come in paragraph one, the preface. And come down about halfway in the middle, you'll see, therefore. Right after that first John's yet, therefore. You're with me? Mm -hmm. Following in the footsteps of the Council of Trent and the First Vatican Council, this present council wishes to set forth the authentic doctrine on divine revelation. So here's, what is the purpose of this text, Dei Verbum? To set forth the authentic doctrine on divine revelation and how it is handed on. So that by hearing the message of salvation, the whole world may believe, by believing it may have hope, and by hoping 
It may have love. It may have love. You would expect it there, at least I would have expected it. It may have eternal life, or it may attain salvation. That somehow, by accepting this text, by reading this text, and believing in what it says, we attain to salvation. But it says, no, that we might have love. Why is that? I want an answer to that. Why is it that the entire purpose of this text on the Word of God is to bring us to love? And love, by its nature, always seeks to share its life with another. If I love my children, I desire to give them everything I have. There's no greater love a man hath than to give his life for his friend. Love always seeks to share itself with another. In the sacred scriptures, Dave Verbum is going to tell us that we are invited into a relationship of love. And through invitation into that relationship, we will receive what the lover has to offer, namely his own life. And that life is eternal and has no end. If we attain to that, then death will no longer have dominion over us. And when we die to this world, we will open our, li- our eyes to the next. Take a look at paragraph 2. And again, we're going to come down uh, about four lines. And all the way over to the right, you'll see this plan of revelation. You're with me? This plan of revelation is realized by deeds and words. I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to tell me what exactly they're talking about. Realized by deeds and words, having an inner unity, the deeds wrought by God in the history of salvation manifest and confirm the teaching and realities signified by the words. Let me read that again. The deeds, the actions done by God in the history of salvation, manifest, reveal, and confirm the teaching and realities signified by the words. While the words proclaim the deeds and clarify the mystery contained therein. By this revelation, then, the deepest truth about God and the salvation of man shines out for our sake in Christ, who is both the mediator and the fullness of of all revelation. What's he talking about? What's he saying about these works and the words and their relationship? What are the council fathers saying? I read that sentence twice for a reason. It's extremely important. The deeds wrought by God in the history of salvation manifest, reveal and confirm the teaching and realities signified by the words. While the words proclaim the deeds and clarify the mystery contained therein. First of all, what is the mystery contained in these works? Yeah, basically, it's just salvation. And that point we talked about love. All of theology surrounds around that. That is the mystery of God, that he seeks to share his life with us. And what the Council Fathers are saying is very important. That the words which we read, we have to remember, point to actual works of God. But those works of God are only fully understandable when they're revealed by the words of sacred Scripture. Why is this important? Because a non-believer can see God working and yet never see God in the work. He can see almost the miracle taking place and yet never understand that there's an actual miracle taking place. So true about our Lord and his life here on earth. He healed the blind and he healed the paralytic. And the Pharisees stood there and said, show us a sign to prove to us that you are who you are. Because they had not received the mystery of that word of God, And so by reading the words of sacred scripture, they reveal to us the inner meaning of that work of God. And that inner meaning of that work of God, that mystery of the work of God, is all about one thing. Namely, God's desire to share his life with us. Does that make sense? Okay. And this is the invitation, which is the revelation 
of sacred scripture. Dei Verbum goes on in the next paragraph, and I'm going to blow through it to say that that revelation has multiple levels in which God invites us, invites man to participate in his life. Turn to the epistle to the Romans. It's one of the epistles of St. Paul, which means it follows the Gospels and Acts. It's written to a community, so it's going to be right there at the beginning of those epistles. Right? Chapter 1, verse 19. Verse 18, let's start there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Okay? Hold on to this, because this is absolutely essential as we deal with the situation today where there's many who have not been preached to. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, His invisible nature, namely His eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. What's St. Paul saying? That everyone on this earth can come to knowledge of God simply by looking at the created order. The created order is that natural revelation of the love of God. And how important that is to us as Catholics. Because I believe that oftentimes we settle with the final chapter in the book. And we leave apart God's revelation to us along the way. And what we end up with is a house which is built upon sand. The first revelation which God gives is out there. And we have to be patient enough and to be humble enough and to be willing to go out into nature and to meditate upon God's gift to us, to seek Him there and to seek the beauty of His created order so that as we then turn to the one who made it, the one who seeks to love us, we will read His gift to us as truly a love letter. Because we will appreciate that gift which He has given to us in the created order in which we stand. So that's the first revelation. Second of all, Dave Verbum says, He revealed Himself to our forefathers, to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He revealed Himself then through all of salvation history to Seth and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to Joseph and Judah, to Samuel and to King David all the way through the story of salvation history, further unveiling that mystery of His life, that mystery of His love to which He asks us to enter in. So that all of salvation history, all of the Old Testament, is absolutely essential for our understanding of what God wants from us. And finally, He reveals Himself fully in the person of Jesus Christ. I say fully because Jesus is the fullness, the complete revelation of what everything that came before him. And why is that? Why is Jesus the final revelation, the final covenant, which can never be broken? Why is that? Because all of salvation history is a matter of, as I said before, love. God's desire to share his life with man. And the whole story of the Old Testament is the story of man rejecting that love and coming back to that love. Huh? And when we accept that love and become a participant in that love, the two become one in the covenant of God. Jesus Christ is the new covenant because in him the two have become one now forever. God and man have been joined in the eternal person of the Word. And that cannot be broken. By looking into the face of Jesus Christ, we behold the eternal love of God which He poured forth from all eternity into the Word. Now joined to our human nature. Huh? Therefore, salvation becomes a participation in that love, the love of Jesus Christ. 
the whole plan of salvation, the whole purpose of our church, the whole purpose of Christianity is to bring us to that relationship, a participation in the divine life which is manifest fully in Jesus Christ. And so you'll see in paragraph 5, the obedience of faith is to be given to God who reveals. The obedience of faith is to be given to God who reveals. This is the first sentence following the paragraph about the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we have a final question that I have to ask you tonight, even though I am way behind. Dave Verbum says that we must have an obedience of faith in order to come to that revelation. In other words, in order to be able to receive that gift of God's love, that point of salvation. We must have faith. Why? This is some concept you guys have heard over and over again. But why? Why is faith so essential? Turn to the Gospel of John with me very quickly. Chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. We'll get to that point later. But these are written that you may believe, huh? that you may have faith, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, by having faith, you may have life in His name. Faith is essential, and without it, salvation is not possible. John says, you must believe. Why is that? So I ask the question, what is faith? And we'll finish with this point. I want to share with you a couple of quotations from Joseph Pieper, and also from St. Thomas Aquinas. He says, faith means to accept something unconditionally as real and true on the testimony of someone else who understands the matter out of his own knowledge. Faith means to accept something unconditionally. Huh? This is the thing out here. The object. Unconditionally as real and true on the testimony of someone else who knows it or sees it out of his own knowledge. He goes on, the believer does not know the subject at all. He goes on, St. Thomas Aquinas states, belief cannot refer to something that one sees, and what can be proved likewise does not pertain to belief. To believe always means to believe someone and to believe something. Quotation from Matthias Schieben, who says, the ascent of of the intellect to the witness truth takes place only to the extent that the will seeks and wishes to bring about consent or agreement with the judgment of the speaker. That I desire to agree with what this person has proposed. Participation in and communion with his insight. And this is where faith becomes supernatural and salvific participation and communion with his insight, or in other words, a spiritual communion with him. The will seeks this union as a good and thus motivates the intellect to accept the insight of the witness as if it were its own, so that the believer stands in exactly the same relationship to that which the other knows and that which he does not know as he does to that which he knows himself. And I'm going to repeat that last sentence because it's crucial. That the believer stands in exactly the same relationship to that which the other knows. Huh? This relationship here. And which he does not know, as it does to that which he knows himself. Why does he say that? I'll finish his quotation. The believer partakes truly of this reality. He touches it, and it becomes present to him all the more that he is capable of a loving identification with the witness, of seeing with the latter's eyes and from his position. There's a principle in philosophy 
that knowledge is the union of the knower and the known. Knowledge is the union of the knower and the known. I can close my eyes right now and I can see my house. I can close my eyes and I can see the face of my son. This is a gift which God has given to us. So that when we come to know him, namely Jesus Christ, who sees and knows salvation, and who has salvation himself, we come to obtain that which the other has and which we do not have. Through a loving union with the words of God, with divine revelation, we come to know that which is hidden in those words, namely God's love himself. And through knowing that love, we are united. The knower is united to the known and is transformed by that knowledge so that that which I did not have access to, I then gain access to. The sacred scriptures are absolutely essential for our salvation because it is in them that is hidden the mystery of God's love. And when I come to know that mystery, there is a union between the knower and the known. And when you're united with God's love, with his life, that life is eternal. And death will no longer have dominion over you. Okay. This was not where I was supposed to stop. <laughs> but I'll finish with this quote from Dei Verbum. By faith, man freely commits his entire self to God. You don't have to read this because I don't even have the paragraph down. I think it's the next sentence. I'm not sure. By faith, man freely commits his entire self to God. He makes the full submission of his intellect and will to God who reveals and makes a willing assent to the revelation given to him. In chapter 2 of Dei Verbum, I'm not going to get into it. I want you to read it on your own. In chapter 2 of Dei Verbum, it talks about how that revelation of God's love, that salvific revelation, is then handed on to every single person how it is ensured that that divine revelation is handed on untainted, without error, so that when you're reading the sacred scriptures, you are truly receiving the word which God has placed there for you, that mystery of His love. I want you to read that because it is an absolutely essential part of divine revelation and it is one which is under attack today. When we hear that the scriptures have been corrupted, or that the church itself has been corrupted. These are two concepts which are foreign to sacred scripture and foreign to the revelation of God. If you're writing down notes, I'll have you write these down and we'll finish. I want you to read this section, chapter 2, and I want you to read chapter 3 because chapter 3 is really important. We were supposed to get to that tonight. Write this down, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. John chapter 16, verse 12, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. What we're going to do next week is we're going to skip chapter 2 and we're going to focus on chapter 3 because it's the heart of Dei Verbum. It's absolutely essential for our understanding. And next week we're going to be burning a book together. No, I won't burn it. I wanted to, but I was worried about the fire alarms terrible text written by Father Raymond Brown on the virginal conception, or lack thereof, as he sees it, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. In this book, he uses the text we have before us to tell us that actually Mary was not a virgin when she conceived of Christ. And he bases that on Dei Verbum. We're going to go after that at the Institute of Catholic Culture because the Holy Father has asked us during the year of faith to give an orthodox, proper understanding of Vatican II. Vatican II does not say that, but it's being used inappropriately to say that. 
And we're going to go after that next week, okay? So read chapter 2 and chapter 3 and those verses I gave you. Some of you might have some questions, so thank you and God bless you. Deacon, when you talk about the importance of faith, and we understand faith as a gift from God, as the Catechism teaches us, where does the understanding of free will assent come into that? Also, are there some people not given the gift, and what is the culpability in that? Yeah, Uh, that's a very difficult question. But, but, um, no, first of all, that faith and God's grace are so intimately related that we cannot say that faith is our own action apart from God's gift. It's God's grace which brings us to faith. And so free will has everything to do with that. God's grace is simply God's love. huh? And He gives us that gift of His life which pushes us onward as one of my theology professors in college talked about, like a river flowing and you're paddling with the river, right? So that you're certainly paddling downriver, but that, that grace of God is carrying you on. And so faith is both a gift, which is God's to us, to bring us to assent to these things, which we do not otherwise know, but also it is our free will and our intellect and our, and our will and our intellect which work now with God's grace to do things which we would not otherwise be able to do. And was that, was there a second part to that? Are, are there some people not given? Everyways, God says He knocks upon the door uh, of our hearts. Always He stands at the door knocking. Okay? And that's where this interplay between free will and grace enter into, really, into God's, the mystery of God's love. Because some people are, seem to be given that gift more easily than others. Some are raised within a believing household, whereas others are not. Uh, and that's where the church's teaching on culpability comes in, that some of us are placed in such a way that it is more difficult to attain to the knowledge of God. But as St. Paul says, all are given enough knowledge of him to be able to begin that process. And when we begin that process with God's grace, then we can grow in that. And that's why you have, as as some have called the holy pagans, I don't really like the term, but pagans, the non-Jews of the old world, like Aristotle and Plato, or some would say maybe Job, but I don't put Job in that category, who lived a life of, you say, almost of perfect humanity. They're working, they're searching for God. And certainly His grace is pushing them along. And so it is possible for those, even without the revelation given to them in the Word and through the teachings of the church, to be able to attain to enough knowledge of God to be able to live out a life which is pleasing to God and by which, in His mercy, He can grant us salvation. Okay? Uh, I hope we can get to this, but when number three, when you say read within the church, I would like to have, you know, maybe clarify that because over the last couple of decades, I have gone to Bible study um, with Catholic mm. groups only, and I never finished because of the infighting about what the Bible means. So, oh, you know, with Catholics. Oh, yeah, well, definitely. With oh, I'm pleased that they're actually discussing it. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> within the context of the believing community is so important. I was thinking about this, and I didn't share it with you guys tonight, but I was thinking about sitting in my my nana's house, um, who's now reposed in the Lord, and being there and sitting on the couch with her, and watching her make pasta and make sauce. And she made sauce a certain way. No one else can make the sauce the way she did, except when I teach my aunt's sauce, and it's it's like, like being at home again, right? And certainly the way she made it was like her mother made it. And the way her mother made it was like her mother, made, her grandmother, and so forth. It's verses standing at the window and watching what's going on inside the house. Not hearing the words, not smelling the smell. Or maybe you smell it coming out of the vents or something, right? You smell that it's good. But you never have a chance to really taste it. And to be through that tasting of it to be able to receive something which is bigger than the sauce itself because you're tasting something which my great, 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 great grandmother handed on. Okay, That gift which is now handed on through tradition. And so another example, and we'll get to this hopefully next week, it's also called the analogy of faith, that 
all of the teachings of Scripture fit into a larger paradigm, a larger scope, which uh, is kind of like standing inside a church. And it has stained glass windows, and that sun's pouring through to the stained glass windows. It's absolutely gorgeous. What happens when you go outside the church and you look at that stained glass window? It's not understandable even, right? It's not understandable. And that's why I don't blame our non-Catholic brothers and sisters for having really heretical concepts of salvation. What are they looking at? A brown window. It doesn't look like a whole lot. Or, I hate to say that, okay, because they love the Scriptures, but it doesn't look like it looks to me and you. It doesn't look like it looks like to the family of God. It doesn't taste like the sauce my nana made. And so, when, as Catholics, we're reading the Scriptures, we're within that family, and there's an understanding within that family. There's a whole background and context which comes into that understanding. Without that background and context, certainly you could read with some prophet. I mean, you could look close at the window and figure there's a man standing there, but you're not going to get really what's coming through. Okay, and that's where I think, I, I, I hate to see Catholics going over to Protestant Bible studies, and they do it because we're not providing enough resources, but you're opening yourself up to a community which is, is not able to fully see that revelation, whereas you're able to see that revelation. When John says that you have to be born again of water and the Spirit, that makes sense to Catholics. But to somebody standing outside to be born again of water and the Spirit. What does that really mean? And you end up with all sorts of heretical answers to that. But to a Catholic, it's understandable because we know what it means to be born again of water and the Spirit. We know that in the Gospel of John, the baptism of Christ had just taken place and that we understand the context of our own baptism. You see, it kind of, I'm going on and on, but does that kind of make sense? And I want to bring this, your point to this question coming from Taiwan. I'm happy to get a questioner from Taiwan. I love it. Some people put your idea of Scripture as the participation in divine life at odds with the liturgy, not just the sacraments. This gets to the same point. But the full idea of canonical public, not just sacraments, the full canonical idea of canonical public worship. Could you talk more about the interrelationship, okay, between, and I'm guessing what he's talking about is the interrelationship between the liturgy and the sacred Scriptures, and how important the liturgy is. And I, I'm glad this question was asked because I had it in my notes and I skipped it because I was behind on time. Talking about reading the Bible as a Catholic. Ultimately, this means hearing the Word of God in the context of the liturgy. In fact, this is what Ratzinger says. He says, read within the company of the church in whose liturgy these events continuously become present anew. And I'll share with you a quote from Cardinal Jean Daniel, which I've shared with you before, some of you. He says, For the fact is that the life of ancient Christianity was centered around worship. And worship was not considered to be a collection of rites meant to sanctify secular life. That's how we think about it, isn't it? We go and we, we receive Jesus in the Eucharist. Now we go out and we, and we sanctify the secular world. And we go back and we get the sacraments. And we go back out in the secular world we do the same thing. Daniel says, No. He says, the sacraments were thought of as the essential events of Christian existence. And think of that God's, God loving us and sharing his life with us. And of existence itself as being the prolongation of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. In them was inaugurated a new creation which introduced the Christian even now into the kingdom of God. It's a lot of stuff. What is he saying? That the liturgy is not simply a repetition. Well, Jesus did it like this, so now we do it like this, and good for us. No. The prolongation of what was begun. And this is, ties right into that point about love. All of salvation history is one story. It's all a revelation of that act of God's knocking on the door and man opening that door. And so in the liturgy, God takes up into his own life because the sacraments are the life of Christ now taken up into the eternal life of God and made present to us. And so now the baptism of Christ is revealed to us. And the baptism of Christ is the revelation of the meaning of the flood of Noah, the crossing of the Red Sea, and so forth. 
it's the prolongation of taking these wonderful mysteries of God's gift of His love and making them present in our life. You want to study the flood narrative of Noah? Go attend a baptism. Because you see the meaning of what was going on in the flood in baptism. The same reality is now made present to us. That's why it's absolutely essential to read within. It's not just an option. You can't read the Bible outside of the Catholic Church because you're going to misinterpret it. It's not meant to be read outside of the community of believers because it was written for the community of believers. No more than I would expect you to think that the golden hills meant the wheat fields, the hills of California turning gold in the summertime. Not your context. And so we have people with a bad context or, a, or not the proper context reading these words and getting out of them things which are not in them. Okay? I'll see you next week. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.